let's go ahead and uh, open up in prayer before we uh, look into the details of James this morning. Let's just start with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us your word. Uh, we know that uh, James has written these things uh, that uh, were intended to address problems in his day, and yet we know that you worked through James to have this written because it applies to problems we have in our day as well. And I pray that you'd give us insight into what you've recorded here for us. Help us to think through what James, uh, you use James to write. And I pray that you'd give us insight into our own lives, our own hearts, as well as insight to explain perhaps in some cases the experiences we see around us as well. And I pray that uh, for those that uh, may need their eyes opened to see the things written here today apply to them, pray that you'd give grace and you'd illumine them. Uh, I pray that it would be a, also, though, Father, a help for all of us to take very seriously the responsibility to live out the faith we profess. And I pray that you'd give us the strength of your spirit to do that. And uh, we pray that you bless our time in the word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, there's an important date coming up in about 23 days. About 23 days. Do you know what that, that important date is? So, you may be thinking that's uh, Halloween, right? Um, well, and in the eyes of the world, that certainly is a very big thing. A lot of people celebrate that very... Uh, very loyally, um, but that's not actually what I'm referring to. Uh, 23 days is, is October 31st, but it's also the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation. Are you familiar with that? And Martin Luther is a key figure in that. That is Martin Luther, who was the Catholic monk, um, who lived in the 1500s, uh, late 1400s and early 1500s. Um, what Martin Luther is famous for doing is creating what is called the 95 Theses, which were basically points of debate that he was putting up on the, the church wall there, or the church door, which, which was a common way at the time to uh, start a debate or to engage someone in a topic of debate. Um, and certainly Luther's theology wasn't mature at that time, so he wasn't, uh, not all 95 of his theses are actually what we would hold to or agree with, but that date of October 31st, 1517, is what has become known as the start of the Reformation. Now Martin Luther uh, certainly went through a period of discovery and learning things, but uh, and his theology wasn't uh, exactly where we are, but he did come to understand very clearly, even though he came out of the Catholic Church, that salvation is by faith, not something you earn by the works that you do, contrary to the system that he had come from. In fact, uh, there's much that's written, and we can't dive too deep into it for time's sake, but... Uh, Martin Luther was a very, very staunch defender of salvation by grace through faith and had a very important role in the Reformation. Although Martin Luther was a very important person in the Reformation, 
um, there were some things that he struggled with. And in fact, he struggled a lot with the passage we're going to look at today in James chapter 2. Martin Luther came to understand, coming out of the Catholic system, that we're justified by faith. That is, according to God, we are declared righteous in the sight of God by faith, not by works, as Paul makes very clear in several of his epistles. And in fact, he cites Romans 1.17 as the verse he meditated on that opened up his eyes to justification by faith. But he had a hard time reconciling what James says here in chapter 2 because James talks about the concept of justification by works. So Martin Luther had a hard time reconciling what James meant and how that fit together with what Paul said. In fact, Martin Luther at times called James's epistle an epistle of straw. Now, that certainly was early on in his, in his uh, conversion and understanding, but uh, he, at a later time as well, said that he would give his doctoral beret, or the, the symbol of his doctoral degree, to someone who could reconcile for him the theology of Paul and James, because he struggled with this passage. So, Martin Luther, however, is not the only person that has ever struggled with this issue. And we are intending to, I, I am intending to get through this passage in one week if we can. We may go a second week if it goes long, but, uh, and we won't dive deeply into it, but I think there's a pretty simple resolution that we'll discuss. But we're going to read James 2, 14 to 26 and talk about the passage here that gave Martin Luther a lot of trouble and then talk about how we can resolve that tension. So let's go ahead and read verses 14 to 26 this morning. In verse 14, we start, What use is it, my brethren, if someone has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. So, uh, James starts us off here in uh, verse 14. Again, notice that he uses the phrase, my brethren, right? We talked about how that signals a transition. He's talking about a new topic here. 
So he has just talked about partiality, not having partiality in our faith or favoritism. Uh, and then he moves in verse 14 to talk about the subject of faith and works. And my suggestion to you is the basic point of what James is saying this morning is living faith works. That is, if you have a genuine faith, not just a profession of faith, if you have a genuine faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, that will result in a transformed life that produces godly works. That, I believe, is the point in which James is making here. He is not uh, in contrast to Paul. In fact, Paul has many similar statements about that idea as well, talking about the grace of God teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. There is a transformation that takes place as a result of saving faith, and that's what James is defending. If you truly have faith, your life is going to be transformed because you're living by faith, and it will change how you behave. Uh, though we recognize it may be slower and different in, in individuals' lives, but a true faith will produce works. But I want you to see, first of all, we're going to look at uh, 14 to 20 is our first section here, and we're going to see how James is making the point that a non-working faith doesn't save. A faith that doesn't produce any works doesn't save. And, and he points out, first of all, that a profession of faith that has no works in it is useless. It, it's worth nothing. So he introduces the principle here in verse 14. He says, what use is it, my brethren, if somebody says he has faith, but he has no works? Now, he's talking here about a generic person. He's not particular, uh, pointing out a particular person that he's writing to. He's using a generic term here to speak of somebody just for the sake of argument. All right, so he's saying uh, someone is claiming to have faith, but they don't have works. And he says that, uh, he, he's asking it in the form of a question. He's essentially got two questions here. He says, first of all, what use is that? What use is that for somebody to say they have a faith that has no product or no result or no change, no works that happen as a result of it? The obvious answer he intends from that is it's of no use. There's no use for such a thing. And in the context of what he's saying here, he's talking about usefulness in terms of salvation. So what use is a faith that claims to exist, someone who claims to have a faith that does nothing? His point is that kind of faith doesn't actually save. It is useless um, for salvation. Now, understanding what he's saying here, um, he also asks the other question, can that faith save him? Again, the point is, the obvious expected answer is, no, it cannot. That's not true saving faith. And this is his point here that he's making. Now, it's interesting in verse 15, James uses an illustration. And I, I just think it's interesting. James, as we talked about in our introduction, what was James' job? What, what, what was it that James did? He wasn't one of the 12 apostles. He was the half-brother of our Lord, according to Mary, the son of Mary, right? Um, but he was the pastor in Jerusalem. So it's kind of interesting how James quite regularly and throughout this passage specifically, uses illustrations to make his point. Um, and he does that in verse 15. He has an illustration. 
He says here, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in, daily, in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, verse 16, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give what is necessary for the body, what use is that? So he describes a situation where somebody has need for food and clothing, and our response to that is, may, may you be warmed and filled, and we basically send them on their way without helping them, providing for the things they need. They need something to eat. They need clothing. We see a need, and we send them away without meeting those needs. And the assumption, it's, of course, a hypothetical situation, but the assumption of the story or the illustration is the, the ability to meet the needs is there, but nothing is done. It's just a well-wishing. We, we, we hope things go well for you, right? Um, his point is that does nothing. And his point in the illustration is when we claim to have faith and it does nothing, it's not a profit at all. And he, I think, is making the point in multiple ways. It doesn't profit the, anyone else. He's been talking through the book, and he specifically mentioned in uh, chapter 1 about taking care of someone who is uh, truly obedient to the word of God, is living by faith, obeying the word of God, will help those in genuine need, like orphans and widows are the specific examples he uses. So someone who genuinely has faith and is obeying the word of God will serve and help others. But... If there's a claim to faith that doesn't serve and help others, it's not a benefit to anybody else. If, if there's a claim for faith and it doesn't result in a relationship with God that's an ongoing relationship and uh, prayer and communication and service to God, it obviously isn't helping in the, in the work of the Lord. And ultimately his point is that kind of professed faith that does nothing is also not going to help the individual who claims to have it because that kind of faith isn't real faith it isn't changing their lives it isn't a, a genuine belief and faith that results in a transformed life now he concludes this section of verse 17 by summing up his point of these two questions essentially saying even so faith if it has no works is dead being by itself. Faith like this, a claim to faith that has no change of life, no transformation, no difference, is a dead faith. It's not a real faith and therefore isn't going to accomplish anything. Now, as a way of illustration, I, I don't know if you're familiar, but I have read about and I heard illustration before about the man Charles Blondin. I'm looking at my phone not because I want to check um, my fantasy football team to make sure it's ready to go, because I have the website up that talks about Charles Blondin. So Charles Blondin was a French tightrope walker back in the 1800s. Have you heard of him before? So uh, it's reported what he did was he was the first person to actually cross over the Niagara Falls on a tightrope. So that was, it's estimated here, according to the statistics I'm reading, about 11,000 feet, or a quarter, uh, that number seems a little high, but 
Um, stretched out over Niagara Falls, he, he walked on the tightrope, and he became very famous for this and got a lot of attention. And um, he was also known for taking different things with him across the tightrope, such as um, he would go on a bicycle or he would go across blindfolded. And the one in particular that's uh, in relevance to our uh, point today is there was reportedly a time when there was a crowd that he had that was quite excited watching him doing this, and he talked about having a wheel, wheelbarrow in which he would take somebody with him in the wheelbarrow across the Niagara Falls on this tightrope. And so the crowd's like, oh, excited. He's, and he asked them the question, do you believe that I can do this? And of course, the crowd is excited, cheering, yeah, 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 we believe you can do it. And he's asking the audience, okay, who will volunteer to be in the wheelbarrow? And of course, what's, what's the response? Uh, nobody essentially wants to get in the wheelbarrow and go with him, right? Um, I've heard different versions of the story. One version of the story I heard, actually his assistant was in the crowd and his assistant volunteered and actually went with him in the wheelbarrow cross. But what's the point of the story and how it connects with what we're saying here from James? The point is, the crowd claimed to believe he could do it. They claimed to believe he was capable of doing this. But were they willing to entrust their own lives to that commitment? Were they real, willing to commit themselves to him, trusting that he would get them across safely? And the reality is, nobody, except perhaps his assistant was really trusting him in that way. And I think that's illustrative of genuine faith. If we truly trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we commit ourselves to him. We are truly trusting in him when we commit ourselves to him, and therefore um, there is a transformation we also understand on the inside that takes place, ultimately the work of the Holy Spirit that changes us. But faith is a commitment. It is a trust. We are truly trusting in our Lord Jesus Christ. And if we have that kind of faith, we're truly trusting in him, there will be eventually a transformed life that comes out of it. Also because we're told in the scriptures, if you are truly born again, what happens is the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside of us and works on our mind, works on our desires, and is at work in changing and transforming us. So there is going to be a change for someone who truly has saving faith. And this is important in our day and age because... There are a lot of churches that in one way have emphasized a good thing and that they've emphasized evangelism and there's a push to share the gospel. But sometimes churches have emphasized to that to the point of advocating people walk through a prayer that really ultimately is meaningless and doesn't result in a true trusting in Jesus Christ and a true and, and eventually therefore a transformed life. Now there will always be false professions in the church no matter how careful we are to present the gospel there will always be people who make a profession that don't actually end up being genuine in the end. But there have been many churches 
that have been very careless with how they've presented the gospel and calling people to walk through uh, a prayer that isn't really a biblical response of repentance and faith. So we need to be careful. We need to be mindful of calling people to repentance and genuine faith, but also recognize a true profession of faith will result in a changed life. And that's the point James is making here. We also see him make the point further, verse 18 to 20. Let's look there where James says, But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So verse 18, James is anticipating, if you will, a counter-argument where somebody is essentially saying, I have faith, and faith is the main thing. That's all I need. I'm good. And essentially, James is saying, show me your faith. Demonstrate to me that you have faith. You really have faith? Then I should be able to see it in action. Let, let's look at uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is full of examples where the Bible tells us about people who had faith. But the description of them and their faith is all couched in what they did how they lived by faith. So look at with me, uh, first example of Abel, verse 4 in chapter 11. It says, of Abel, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. So see, there's an action there. He had genuine faith that came out in his choice of sacrifice. That Faith resulted in an action. We also see this with uh, Noah as well. Look at Noah, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. Noah acted by faith, but there was an action. His faith resulted in him responding to the commandment of God to build the ark. So he did in reverent fear. That was a demonstration of a genuine faith. There are many other examples. For time's sake, we won't go into them, but I think you understand the point. A genuine faith results in action based on that faith. And that's the point James is getting at. And he gives here in verse 19 a very stark example of his point. Look with me at verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Verse 19, he's pointing out here, the demons also believe and shudder in response to this knowledge about God. So he's pointing out you might even recognize the truth about who God is. So he says here in this example, God is one. And, and we would include in that, uh, we understand that God is one. There is one God. There is no other. But that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. And these three are one, right? So his point is, you may recognize that truth. But that doesn't equate to saving faith. And his stark example is the demons. 
The demons know very well who God is. They have the right knowledge of who God is. They know that. They believe it. They're convinced of it. They know who God is. And he even says they go beyond that. Not only do they just have this knowledge, they also shudder or they have an emotional, fearful response to God. But what they don't have is what James is getting at, which is the willful submission to God. It is the obedience that they lack. It is the, the willful submitting. And his point here is a genuine faith includes a knowledge that's correct. And it also does include an emotional response, a a, a submission, uh, but also a response of the will, a, a response of submission. That's what genuine faith includes. And if it includes a submission of the will, it's going to result, therefore, in a transformed life. That's the point he's making here. A faith that claims to be real but does not change it does not result in a difference in a person's life is not a real faith and therefore ultimately will not save a person because it's not a real genuine faith as we already mentioned if you are uh, trusting in Jesus Christ you are truly repenting and trusting in Christ God gives the Holy Spirit to those that are his and there will be a producing of the fruit of the Spirit in the life of a believer. It tells us in Galatians 5.22 that the fruit of the Spirit is love, and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If there is a genuine faith, there will be a genuine working of the Spirit which will produce these qualities or good, good works in the life of believers. Therefore, the lack of these qualities is an indication of a faith that is not a real thing. And he makes the point in verse 20, just summarizing his point here, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? So essentially he's arguing that his point is pretty clear and that a genuine faith um, is required, a, a genuine faith will produce works, and if it doesn't, it's not the real thing and therefore ultimately won't save. All right, so James points out this first, but I want you to see secondly, he points out that works confirm a living faith. James is not saying the means by which you are made right with God is works. That is not his point. The means by which we are made right with God is repentance and faith. By coming to Christ in faith, God declares us righteous. We are justified by faith, and as Paul has laid out very clearly. James isn't arguing against that. What he's pointing out is, if you truly have been justified, it will manifest itself by a changed life, a demonstration of good works. And he's going to cite here two Old Testament examples to prove his point. So we're going to look at, first of all, the, the first example is Abraham. He talks about Abraham in verses 21 to 24. Look at verse 21 with me. He says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, why, why does he use Abraham? I, I suggest a few reasons. One, 
he was the father of the Jewish nation, right? So we, we've talked about how the epistle, the epistle of James is essentially written to a Jewish Christian audience. So Abraham is a perfect example for the Jewish people. He is also, however, though, the father of faith for Gentiles as well. He's the example that uh, Paul talks about of one having become uh, righteous in the sight of God, Genesis 15, 6, where it says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Paul brings up the question, was that in his state of being circumcised or uncircumcised? And his point was he wasn't circumcised yet. Therefore, he's also an example or a father of the faith, if you will, for Gentiles as well as the Jews. So Abraham is a great example to use because he is the spiritual patriarch and admired and respected by all. And the good work that Abraham does is amazing demonstration of faith, is it not? His willingness to offer his son Isaac. So he uses Abraham here as a perfect example of the principle that he's making. Now, James is asserting that Abraham was justified by works. So we find the example here of him offering Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22 is is where God tells Abraham to offer his son Isaac, and Abraham uh, essentially is obeying God, and he is stopped right before he completes the process of sacrificing his son. But yet, we also see in Genesis 15.6, I have you turn there with me to Genesis 15.6, because this verse is actually uh, quoted in what James says, and actually comes before this incident in Genesis 22. And therefore, is a key verse in understanding the point. In Genesis 15, 6, it speaks of Abraham. And it says, Then he believed in the Lord, and he, that is God, my version is capitalized uh, to make that clear, and he, that is God, reckoned it to him, that is Abraham, as righteousness. You see, it was Abraham's faith that was the basis of him being declared righteous before God. It was his faith. Just as Paul said, and Paul also uh, quotes this passage as well. Um, But it also says here, according to James, that Abraham was justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac. So how how do we reconcile those things? Well, I, I think a couple things we need to understand. Number one, justification in the sense of which Paul is speaking about it, uh, being justified by faith, as we also see in Genesis, is a declaration of God that we are righteous in his sight because of our faith. That is the basis of being righteous before God. When he is speaking here of Abraham and his works, he is speaking of it as a later testimony where God has declared about Abraham based on what he did. It is a demonstration of what's already taken place. In fact, he talks about it fulfilling what was said, and he quotes this verse, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness there in verse 23 in James 2. He's quoting Genesis 15, 6. So what he's saying is, that's the basis of his salvation. The basis of him being declared righteous 
And this later testimony that happens in Genesis 22 is a confirmation where God is declaring that indeed he is righteous, but it was originally based on his faith we saw in Genesis 15. So his good works are a testimony or a demonstration that he truly is righteous. It wasn't in Genesis 22, after Abraham was willing to offer up his son Isaac, that God then said, okay, now you're going to be righteous in my sight. No. His point is, Abraham is righteous. This proves it. It is a demonstration of what has already happened. So, we have Isaac, uh, the sacrifice of Isaac here by Abraham as a demonstration of these, uh, the faith that Abraham has. Now he points out here, if you look with me at verse 22, speaking of this, he talks about Abraham's faith in the process. He says, you see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. So he's pointing out here that Abraham's faith preceded this event, right? So Abraham was already believing God, and then he says his faith worked with his works. So the work that he did, this good work of offering his son Isaac, was a work of faith, a faith he already had, and it was done in faith, and he says here it was made, uh, it says it was perfected. Um, we tend to think of that as uh, perfect, but the idea is that of brought to maturity or it reached its goal. So the point is, God works in our lives, and, and actually we're told, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, that uh, the faith is also a gift. God gives faith uh, that he then, on that basis, declares us righteous, and the goal of that faith is ultimately that we'll be faithful to God or faithful to Jesus Christ. So the obedience is a fulfillment of the goal of that faith, that we reach the point of intended outcome of the faith, that it results in obedience. So that's his point here. The goal of faith given at salvation is faithfulness to Christ. Now, we see several examples of this in the scripture, and I would suggest to you this is the same point that is being made to us by the parable of the sower, is what James is saying here. In the parable of the sower, we're told about four different responses to the gospel. There's those that don't respond at all, essentially, and of course, there's nothing going to come of that. But there's also a response initially that it receives it with joy, but it tells us over time um, it's, it's dried up, and, and that seed dries up and it dies. Um, we're told about the seed that falls among thorns is choked out, and he talks about the cares and the riches of the world uh, choking that out. The, the one that died, it, it, the sunlight is the illustration, but the point is persecution comes and um, uh, it, it, uh, it dies out. And then it, we're told about the fourth soil that responds. There's growth, and it says there's 30, 60, 100-fold. And, and what I'm submitting to you is that that is an example of true saving faith, that last response. It's not this initial profession that, oh, yeah, yeah, I believe, but it is the demonstration of a genuine faith over time produces fruit. James is making the same point. In Matthew chapter 12 is also a very similar statement made by our Lord. Notice what uh, Matthew 22, I'll just read it for time's sake. 
Verse 37 says, our Lord Jesus says, For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Very similar idea what he's saying there. But the idea is not that your words are actually what makes you righteous. The point is your words demonstrate what you really are. So your words are an evidence of what's in your heart. So a genuine faith results in a changed life, which includes how we speak. And that ultimately will demonstrate whether our faith is legitimate or not. Our Lord uses, the word, uh, uses words in Matthew 12. James is here using works. Same ideas. Our works will ultimately demonstrate the reality of what we are. In that same passage in Matthew chapter 12, our Lord also talks about either, in verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit, or make the tree bad and its fruit, for the tree is known by its fruit. You, you walk by a tree that's an uh, apple tree, you can tell that it's an apple tree by the type of fruit it's growing. You see the apple tree. And you know that's what it is. Or we have relatives that live in Florida. We like to go down to Florida. And when you get to Florida, if you're driving, you get past the Georgia border. And one of the first things you see is orange trees. And you know they are orange trees by the fruit. And that's the point that our Lord was making in Matthew 12. And that's also the point James is making. The fruit of our lives demonstrates the reality of what we are, whether our faith is genuine or not. So he uses the Abraham as an example here to prove that point. He also uses Rahab very quickly, verse 25. It says, in the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So Rahab, why Rahab? Well, this is another extreme, right? So we have Abraham as the supreme Jewish example to use. Now he uses somebody who is a Gentile, somebody who had a lifestyle before becoming a part of the Israelite community, which she did. Um, she, was, she was a Gentile, and she was of a lifestyle that was a very wicked lifestyle. So what James is doing is he's using these two extreme examples to, in other words, say, this applies to everyone in between. That's his point. Rahab also uh, obtained a good report, was uh, shown to be righteous by the fact of her receiving the messengers. What, what happened was the, the nation of Israel sent in spies to the land of Canaan because they're getting ready to go and attack it, so they want to spy it out. So Rahab received those spies, took them into her house, protected them so that they weren't found by the, the nation or the, uh, the, the leaders of the city that were looking for those men, she protected them, and then she sent them out another way so they could safely get to what they were doing. She protected them. That was a demonstration of her faith in the God of Israel. Her actions demonstrated a genuine faith, and it was a product of a genuine faith, and that's the point. A genuine faith produces good works. He concludes in verse 26 by saying, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. The example here, the body 
we are body and spirit, or body and soul, and if we uh, no longer have the spirit, we are dead. We're just a lifeless body. And his point is, in the same way, someone who has an empty profession of faith says they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet it does nothing to change their lives or affect how they make choices on a daily basis, that's a dead faith. And ultimately, that kind of profession isn't going to result in salvation. So there is a very serious warning here from James about empty professions, claiming to know the Lord without having any change of a life. And we can say, and looking back at what Martin Luther wrestled with here, the simple resolution is James is not talking about the basis by which somebody comes to be righteous with God. He's talking about the demonstration of someone who is right with God. And that ultimately, as our Lord also says, the, the, the actions or the works and the words will demonstrate whether the profession of faith is real or not. So, this should challenge all of us to evaluate our own lives. Rather than becoming a focus upon everybody else, and are they the real deal or not, we, we do need to be discerning. And Jesus does say a tree is known by its fruits. There is, there is a need to be discerning. But we should all evaluate our own hearts. Is our faith real? Are we truly trusting in the Lord and our lives transformed by our relationship with him. There should be a change of life. It does not mean it's a perfect life. There will be struggles, as we were just uh, talking about in Sunday school. There are times, as believers, we're going to sin, we're going to do wrong, but someone who has faith and really has a relationship with God is going to recognize God is gracious and forgiving. We come to him, we get cleansing, we get forgiveness. But is our faith real are we just professing or does our lives match up and back up a profession of faith james is saying a person who says he has faith and has no works that faith isn't going to save there is a necessary link between faith and good works let's pray heavenly father we thank you that you Give us these things in your word to evaluate our own hearts, our own lives. Uh, Father, we, we are all inconsistent. And of course, those who are your children are not perfect. But Father, there are also times when people think they've come to know you and there, there isn't a transformed life. And it may not be genuine. And sometimes the circumstances of life you bring help expose that. I pray, Father, if anyone is confused and, and misunderstanding, that they would recognize that and, and truly turn from their sin and truly trust in Christ. I pray as well, Father, you'd help us to be discerning. There are people that claim to know you, and they can lead people astray. Help us to be discerning. Help us also, Father, as we talked briefly about sharing the gospel. Help us to be careful in how we present the gospel, that the life of Christianity is, is not just 
saying a prayer once and, and it never then having any impact on life beyond that. But help us to call people to repentance and faith and accurately communicate the gospel and not be so zealous for conversions that we mishandle it. Help us, Father, to understand and apply these things. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.